This is Riley Perez, the author of What is Real? The Life and Crimes of Darnell Riley, released by Rare Bird Books. We're on the Rare Bird podcast, and I'm here with Peter Leonard, the author of the novels Quiver, Trust Me, All He Saw Was the Girl, Eyes Closed Tight, and his latest stab at crime in Raylan Goes to Detroit from Rare Bird Books. How are you doing, Peter? Doing well, very well. Uh, how about yourself? Uh, it's better than 30 degrees in Michigan. <laughs> so <laughs> California is giving me a little bit of peace right now compared to Michigan. That's great. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, loved your story. I mean, it's, you know, and I have obviously questions I want to ask you, but. I, I have to, you know, say right offhand, uh, I, I love your work. I love your father's work. And I love that you've taken a character of his a pretty well-known character and, you know, chose to give him a whole new life. So for the listeners, can you give us some historical perspective on the character Raylan and uh, where we've seen him before and why you chose to give him his gun and badge back? Good, good questions. Well, my father told me that he was at a, a booksellers convention in Texas, uh, I don't know, about 15 years ago, and uh, he was sitting at a table, and a guy came up to him and said, Hi, Mr. Leonard, I'm a big fan of yours. My name is uh, Raylan Givens. And my father, you know, he stopped and thought, Raylan Givens, that's a book. He's a book. And uh, and so Elmore uh, put uh, Raylan in uh, two of his novels, and then he wrote a novel called Raylan, and... Uh, and a short story, Fire in the Hole, that was uh, you know made into a series, Justified, uh, that ran for six seasons. And uh, when my father died uh, five years ago, he was writing a book called uh, Blue Dreams. And uh, at, even at the funeral, people came up to me and said, "You're going to finish your dad's book." And it really hadn't occurred to me. My, I, I, I was you know thinking about my dad and you know just other things, not not. Right, rewriting his book or, or finishing his book. And the more I thought about that, it just didn't seem to make sense. Didn't I didn't like it. It would the the interfering of my father's novel. But my brother Chris said, Hey, why don't you write a Raylan novel? And I thought, that's not bad. And there was a there was a precedent established uh by the writers uh who wrote Justified. I thought, well, these these uh, six or seven writers have you know kept Raylan going for six seasons. So I felt, uh, what the heck? I'll take my shot at it and uh, and write Raylan my way. Bring him to Detroit from Harlan County, Kentucky, and uh, put him on the fugitive task force in Detroit. And so that's uh, that's where it started. Excellent. So on the show, Justify. Other characters that your father created also make appearances, correct? Yes. I didn't really use any of them. I mean, there, there's, there are references. There's uh, Art Mullen, who is uh, a Raylan's uh, chief. Uh, you know, I, I, I've used, I use him in the beginning of the book. Uh, Raylan is, uh, in my story, uh, uh, almost kicked out of the marshal service because of an altercation he has with his supervisor. 
And uh, so Art Mullen, the former chief, goes to bat for Raylan and gets him reinstated. And the the only uh, opening in the service is uh, in Detroit, Michigan, where people really don't want to go. That's that's not on their their top ten list. I have to say, because I spent a month with uh, uh, U.S. Marshals in Detroit, San Diego, and El Centro, California, and uh, the the Marshals in Detroit got used to it. But if I, I said to, to the Marshals in uh, San Diego, you know, what do you think? How would you like to work in Detroit? And they all just said, no way. The weather or is it? It's weather. It's isolation. It's the, you know, just the reputation of Detroit as a, uh, a violent city. And, you know, and I think that was true in the past, but Detroit is changing dramatically and, uh, and for the better. And, uh, I, I spent uh, some time with the Detroit Marshals, as I mentioned, and it was really fascinating riding around with them, going to going to watch them arrest fugitives and just listening to them talk and uh, the, the rhythms of their speech. It was uh, it was a good time. I still talk to several of them, several of the Marshals, and uh, they call me and tell me about uh, cases that they're working on. They're excited and uh and it's great. It's wonderful. What's the response that any of the uh, marshals have had to Raylan and his his approach to dealing with this no man's land for marshals in Detroit? Well, um, the uh, there's a character uh, Bobby Torres, and I model him after uh, a Detroit marshal and. Uh, Whose, whose nickname was Paco. And uh, so I, I sent Paco a book. Uh, he lives in a suburb of Detroit. And uh, he called me up, uh, I don't know, a week later after he got the book. And he said, uh, he said, this guy, Bobby, is legit. This is really <laughs> something. And then uh, Paco wasn't much of a book reader. He, he told me that he'd only read a couple of books in the past 10 years. But when he finished Raylan, he said, uh, I love it. He said, great job, fantastic. And I've heard uh, similar reactions from other uh, Detroit Marshals. Right. You know, I'll say this about the U.S. Marshals. So, uh, as you know, in in my uh, prologue to my book, What is Real, I talk about the day that I was arrested where the U.S. Marshals, in conjunction with LAPD, um, some type of agreement they had where the U.S. Marshals were helping the LAPD clear all of their felony warrant and warrants, and I just happened to fall up on their list. So when I was arrested, it was by the U.S. Marshals who had already been staking out different addresses that they had uh, for me. And once I get the cuffs slapped on me and they identify that I am the person on the warrant, and I asked them, you know, what's this for? And their response was, we're just body baggers, you know. Right. <laughs> we, yeah, we that's, it's a good line. Yeah. We don't care about, you know, what your charges are. I mean, just for the sake of us being secured, knowing that, you know, we have to take this very seriously security wise. But th- that stood out to me big time that we're just body baggers and you're you're the first one this week. You know, so they cross me off the list as bagged and tagged and they move on. So, I mean, they definitely serve 
you know, they have a great service that they provide in that they're able to cross state lines and, and go after the guys. And I, I know that you have Raylan and his, uh, the partner he's paired with eventually, uh, skipping out, actually crossing international lines to chase their, their fugitive. So what are the antics that you see that can come from that? If there is going to be a follow-up? Uh, I don't know if there is going to be a follow-up, but the, I got the idea, uh, of Raylan teamed up with a, a female FBI agent after listening to marshals in Detroit and San Diego talk about how they bumped heads with the FBI and uh, and the, how the FBI has this uh, kind of arrogance. Uh, they're both federal agencies, but uh, the FBI seems to have the higher profile. And uh, so I thought, uh, Raylan and a female FBI agent. Uh, Raylan is really the pro. He's the manhunter, but the uh, the FBI agent, uh, you know, has the uh, the cachet of being with the FBI. And so, to me, it was I think kind of an interesting uh, pairing. And uh, they they bump heads pretty much all the way through the book. And so, I have been asked, am I going to continue the character? I've just written another book. And the, the main character is a female marshal on the the fugitive task force in Detroit. And this is this character is based on a, a woman, the, the the lone female on the uh, the task force that I spent time with. And uh, she was an interesting contrast. This kind of girlish woman who had a Glock twenty two on her hip and and wore a tech vest and uh, she worked with all these alpha males guys who had been in law enforcement and a couple of them were former marines so a girl and these you know these tough guys it was it was a good uh, thing to see right so in in this upcoming book this new character that you created this new world that you throw the character into tell me what's the difference in you making the decision, okay, this is who I have as a new character and this is the world versus Raylan and the world that was already, uh, that already existed, the character that your father had already created. What was the difference in, in timing of you saying, uh, I, I guess this goes to your writing process. What was the timing of you saying, yes, I'm going to do it and here's what the world looks like and here's how I'm going to, create that world for my audience? Well, I got the idea uh, about doing a book on this female agent. In, in, in my story, her name is Kate McGraw. And I got that even before the Raylan book. I had spent time uh, dr- driving around with Kate, and uh, we were in a, a couple of high-speed driving situations going 100 miles an hour, weaving through traffic to get to a house where a, uh, a fugitive had just shown up. And uh, she looked at me and said, are you okay? <laughs> I thought it was, it was kind of funny because uh, here's this 26-year-old girl asking me if I'm okay. And of course I was. Uh, I just thought it was fascinating seeing the, the female agent in action and watching her in one situation tase this 250-pound guy who was you know, running from a scene and, and cuffing him without assistance. I was in a, 
in another situation where, there were, where we pulled into this uh, gas station supermarket and there were all these street guys hanging out in front and she said, I've got to, I'm going to go in and get some water. And uh, she said, don't get carjacked. I said, where's my gun? She said, it's in the compartment between the seats. It's my backup. So she comes out a few minutes later and one of the guys, street guys, is talking to her. And she gets in the car, and I said, well, what did he say? And she said, he thought he just saw me in a video game. And, and then he asked me out. He said, I'd like to take you out for a steak dinner. And I said, well, what did you say to him? And she said, I'm a vegetarian. But this, uh, this character is, you know, was fascinating to watch and, and was just really fun to write. And so got if you're not, ready to go. If you're not going to use that line, can I borrow it for a novel I'm writing? <laughs> that was a great line, but I have to ask you. I I know you're this Raylan character. I've 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 followed him through your father's writings and all of your. I was first introduced to your father's writings through Cuba Libre, and I was hooked from that point going forward. Out of sight may be one of the best adaptations I've seen of Omar Leonard's work, but can you give me uh, give me some influences of yours, literary or or any creative realm that that has helped you go forward and jump into these different worlds that you don't ordinarily live in? Well, I think uh, Ernest Hemingway, you know, was my first uh, influence, uh, just his style, his simple style. Um, like my father, uh, George V. Higgins, uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is so real. It, it, it sounds like a, you know, a transcript of dialogue. It's so good. And I'm trying to think who else? John D. MacDonald I read, although you know he, he did a different kind of thing with, with his uh, Travis McGee series, but I love that. I think who else here? There's an author I'm thinking about. His name is Riley Perez. You just read his book. Sounds familiar. Yes. It sounds familiar. You, you have your own style. I, you know, I really like what I've read of yours. I mean, you're great. You, uh, you have a sound, as my father would say. Who are your influences? Well, I appreciate it. Uh, Hemingway for sure. Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald. I probably read um, maybe three, four of his short stories every year over. Uh, um, Great Gatsby, I read it at least once a year. And when I was when I was away incarcerated, uh, I I had plenty of time to go through different exercises. But one exercise that I would do is I would write, you know, different chapters of the Great Gatsby and try to capture that his his flow, his flair. I had an opportunity to reread Cuba Libre when I was away, and it brought me right back to when I had first read it. So Elmer Leonard, I got to say, definitely is one of my influences. Um, um, I'm going to dive more into all of your other books because I know as I rambled off, you've you've been pretty, pretty consistent in popping out hit after hit. And you originally, you may, early on in your career was in, as an ad exec. And I mean, so you're already in that creative space. You grew up with a creative father around you, a lively city of Detroit. Uh, I can just imagine, I mean, the times that you came up in Detroit, 
and what I've seen in in the work, in the readings, and uh, excuse me, the writings that your father's produced, that he definitely captured the city of Detroit uh, in out of sight. I mean, the the underground boxing scene, the the street guys that you know have a certain arrogance about them, and then here you have J Lo's character, who's you know equally as tough and the authority of that badge. So strong female characters that you have, uh, I've seen in other areas and it's great when they have the badge, which gives them that authority on top of whatever, you know, whatever guts they already have naturally. So I always look for some type of, uh, um, I guess, you know, that old outlaw type of guy who maybe comes into town and he got to right some wrongs, you know, those, yes. those, those stories yeah. always have a way of pulling you in. Yeah, that's that's good. I love the uh, the female characters, the main characters that I've created. Um, uh, in uh, Trust Me, I have a a female lead who we meet uh, in the opening scene. She's in bed with her boyfriend, and uh, she's watching TV, and and he's reading a golf magazine, and and uh, she seems bored, and he seems bored, and they. They, they turn their lights out and uh, they're sleeping for a couple hours, you know, they, and, and they hear a loud noise and both of them get up and open the uh, table side uh, drawers and take, pull out their guns. And uh, they walk uh, into the living room with their guns and uh, they're, they're held up by these two guys who knew that the the boyfriend had just won money at the uh, one of the casinos in Detroit, and uh, so one guy takes the the girl into the dressing room, and one guy stays with the the boyfriend. And while the gunman and the girl are in the dressing room, the girl propositions him, and uh, she says, "Hey, do you want to make?" enough money, one score to live on an island for the rest of your life. And, of course, the guy's surprised, and uh, she said, because I've got it. And uh, that's how the story begins, and uh, I I, th- I think that's kind of interesting. Strong female. It's very interesting. Strong female who's taking charge of her destiny versus just being a pedestrian in life, right? Exactly, and she makes the guys look foolish at times, and I, I think that's interesting. She's in charge. Yeah. yeah I, well, you, you saw that in Out of Sight, you know, where J-Lo's character is, is you know, taken at one point, but she still realizes she has she has another card to play. You know, so it's it's definitely a, uh, an interesting read when you when you know that this character is always going to look for that. Uh, maybe you haven't seen this play yet. Uh, have you thought about this? And uh, you know, given the given the the bad guy in the story, something else to consider, especially when his whole motivation is uh, he he's going into the situation for the gain, the gain of the money. So, will he get lured in by the possibility of a shining bobble in my left hand and let my right hand go, then I can crack him with a hammer? So, th- there's one line. And uh, I have to go back to Out of Sight that I run into the character uh, Isaiah Washington, 
the other day we go to the same cigar bar and I said a line that his character used, which was shoot the hinges. And he, he started busting up laughing because it's such a idiotic thing that a bumbling criminal would do is think that he can shoot the hinges of a safe to open it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, when that, yeah. So when that film came out, friends of mine who are in the underworld, that's a line that sticks out to them as, you know, this is only something a complete idiot who has never really had a score where they have a safe in front of them to know that you can't shoot the hinges of it. And the safe's <laughs> all of a sudden open, you know? Right. So sure. moments like that where you, where you see real people, not every criminal went to like, uh, uh, you know, master class in, in criminology and real, you know, realize, okay, our next score is going to be the first national bank. No, you know, you have guys who, still hubcaps and they eke out a living, you know, sure. they exist in this world. So, and, and I came across them on the other side, once I was incarcerated where, you know, the guy that was at the table across from me at the chow hall, you know, he simply was a gardener. This guy worked construction, uh, real life always, you know, has a way of, of presenting itself when we create fiction because they're they're based on someone we've come across at some point. Exactly. Look, can I ask you something? Sure. Uh, first, let me say that I uh, once spent a week in an Italian prison for stealing a taxi cab. So you know, that was the only time I've ever been incarcerated. And uh, but you know that's nothing. I mean, you spent ten years in prison. How did you do it? How did you get through it? Well, it definitely wasn't for taxi cab theft, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> jail is jail. Um, incarceration being deprived of your freedom of movement. One, one influence in how I wanted to tell my story uh, comes from uh, Henry David Thoreau's uh, Civil Disobedience which details one night that he spent in prison a hundred years before I was incarcerated. And it, it, it rings as true today as it did when he wrote it of, you know, you being denied freedom from the state because you, you, you violated the laws that you agreed upon to abide by, by being a citizen of this state. So in in being incarcerated and knowing that I violated the law, uh, there's that transformation that you go through, the mental transformation of, I'm here, I can't leave. I'm either going to go insane and pull my hair out, uh, start taking the uh, pharmaceutical route out and just dull whatever senses still remain, or I'm going to, like, create this fort around my mind and I'm going to create my own world. Anytime that I can check out and enjoy reverie, you know, enjoy these nice moments that I've lived, jump into a, a nice book and have that moment of escapism. Um, and that's what I did. I, I, I had to have like compartmentalized world where, where I physically was, didn't exist for that moment. I'd, I'd allow myself enough time to, to go into another realm and literature 
definitely helped. Uh, music, it's a story. So music would play parts when I go for a jog on the yard. I can, those laps I'm doing, okay, this music going to propel me for another two or three and hopefully the yard time is up and I can get back in the cell and chalk this day off the calendar. So th- there is no one way um, that, I mean, if I had to write a prison guide, I'd say there is no one way. The way I did it is I, I realized where I was and I, I wasn't mad at the system because I completely committed the crime. I, I'm the one who violated the laws, violated this person's safety. So I was, I was okay with the time that I had to serve, even though I fought to get to 10 year sentence versus a life sentence. Um, so I was, I was at peace in, in, in that regard that I, I didn't feel like I had been set up or uh, I was wrongfully convicted or they gave me too much time or I didn't have any gripes in that way. So um, I didn't think that I was a victim to the system or circumstances of life. And I think that's the first thing is realizing I didn't have the victim mentality. You know, the man didn't come and give me the gun and say, you know, go commit these crimes. I had plenty of other options. And the one I chose was life of crime. I, in my new story, the uh, Kate, the, uh, the marshal, uh, her father, she and her father have been estranged since she was six years old. And he appears in her life and uh, she finds out that he's been in uh, prison, Victorville, California, for the past 18 years, and he was a bank robber. Actually, he he robbed a, an armored truck, and so I did a lot of research into the you know what what it's like in prison. Read a bunch of accounts, and uh, what you just said sounds so so much like what I have discovered. Exactly. Yeah, Victorville. There's there's a couple of prisons out that way. <laughs> it's like a prison alley. Oh. Uh, let me, can I ask you, when you walked out a free man, uh, what did you, how'd you feel? What was uh, going through your head? Yeah, good question. I, I was, I was released. The last prison that I was in was in uh, Tracy, California. And uh, friends of mine wanted to come pick me up, but I, I decided I wanted to take the Greyhound bus, somewhat like a baptism. Let me take this long <laughs> from Northern California down to L.A. And it was actually the perfect thing for me because I got to see um, the San Joaquin Valley, all the different farms. And we'd pop into a small town for a stop. We'd go to another sta- town. And, you know, the closer I got to L.A., uh, there wasn't much pressure on me and what's going to, you know, what's it going to look like? What's it? I knew the city hadn't changed much. Um, I knew also that uh, my friend was going to be at the Greyhound bus station in downtown to pick me up. So coming out, I didn't have any, uh, oh, I want to eat this. You know, I don't want to have a pizza. I want to have a this. I want to have a that. All I wanted to do was just get to doing what I had already been planning. So, and which is, I just wanted to work. I wanted to go get a job as a dishwasher and just be amongst regular folks that are punching the clock and some type of camaraderie with just regular folks who have no care for the crap that 
I had to deal with inside, you know, the racial tension, the gang tension. You got to sit in this side with this group and that group. You know, well, well, I don't like this guy in that group. Well, that's the group you're in. Oh, shit. You know, so all of that, being able to be free from that, I was just so ready to get to living in a regular existence, even if that meant being a dishwasher for the next five years, but being free to go into the restaurant and come out as I want. So it felt it felt a bit of relief that that world was no longer restraining me. You know, the physical walls. How long did um, it take you to to really feel like you were free? I mean, does it happen immediately, or does it take time? Are you are you thinking this isn't really real? Uh, nice play on the word with the book, <laughs> but right. um, uh, I think it was. I, I think properly it was the the day that i woke up on the day of my of my book release and i got a an email from tyson saying congratulations you're an officially published author that was a great feeling i wasn't expecting the email so that was even you know uh, that was even a, that was an added bonus on top of it but all of what i had already been thinking of what i'm going to do how i had already been planning um and then when i wrote it in eventually finding its way to Tyson to wake up to that email was somewhat of a, you know, it was, it was like a, a, a big hand clap from him and everyone else that I had left on the inside who wished me well, you know, genuinely wanting me to succeed guys that will never see the, this side of, of the fit of this world, you know, they're going to be in there for life sentence or whatever. Uh, so it, it was somewhat of a, you know, I, I'm carrying their spirit, you know, because they genuinely want me to succeed. And, you know, uh, it, I don't want to let them down. I'm not going to, I don't want to let myself down, but I, I know if I was to go back in and guys were to see me, there would be disappointment. You know, it's weird to say that maybe to some, but, I don't want to disappoint guys who'll never have this opportunity again, regardless to my personal convictions on the life I'm, I'm living. There's a big part of me that doesn't want to let the guys down. Who'll never get this chance. How about holding that book for, you know, your first book. I, I remember, you know, when I, uh, I had my first book quiver. I, uh, I went to a borders bookstore in my town when they, when they had bookstores and, uh, there was a display of my book and I, I was just so excited. It, it seemed surreal almost. And, uh, you know, what did you think you're holding your book and you're, you know, you can't believe it. I mean, what, what, what were your thoughts? Yeah. Well, the day of my publication was the day of my first reading and it was held at a diesel bookstore in the Brentwood country mark, my home bookstore oh, and watching the, the crowd that filled up the country mark, friends and family, my rabbi, <laughs> you know, it, it was a great feeling to come out to read. And my buddy, Peter Conti, who moderated the reading for me, uh, with me rather, he, you know, he introduced who he is and our relationship. And, and I'm looking out at the crowd of folks and know some of them who had already read it when it was in a manuscript form, some that hadn't read it yet, but know my, my story and you know the the excitement of of everyone else for me to seeing me at this point there was another moment of 
but I wanted to thank everyone right away for their support. You know, however it came, if it just was encouragement or, you know, whatever else, but yeah, it, it is a good feeling to know that you've climbed that mountain and now we have to do the song and dance and do podcasts and interviews and the business of, of, right. of being an author. So, yeah, this is the interesting part. The easy part was writing it, as I'm sure you realize, you know that, you know, you can write all day, but then you have to go out and do the song and dance. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, writing it is certainly more enjoyable. Um, I Can I ask you one more thing? I uh I love the uh, your description of L in the prologue, and uh, and I and I her sleeping naked with the pillow between her knees, and it's just that's powerful. And I mean, is that did that, was that something that helped you during your incarceration? That you know, picturing that it was helpful in one way in that I the, the visuals of her. <laughs> Uh, it was torturous in another way, as yeah, you, right. as you, how she exited my life. So there was the the the, the joy and the, the pain. So, yeah, she made the visuals of her her naked body that you know sustained me many nights. But then there's also, oh, you know the, yeah. Do I punch the wall and break my hand, or do I just let it go? Yeah, it's bittersweet, certainly. Bittersweet for sure. Well, this has been a great opportunity. I really thank you for your openness and shedding light. And if you can, so give me a breakdown of Raylan as he goes to Detroit, uh, maybe an elevator pitch, and let me know what else you got coming up. I actually have been uh, writing uh, for television lately and. I have a, uh, a, a series uh, based on a book of mine called uh, Voices of the Dead. It's set in 1971, and uh, the main character is uh, Harry Levin, who's a Holocaust survivor and a scrap metal dealer in Detroit. And his daughter is killed in an auto accident in Washington, D.C. Harry goes to claim the body and finds out that... Uh, the daughter was uh, killed in an auto accident by a drunk diplomat, and the guy is a German. And Harry doesn't find out anything, and nobody will tell him a word. And he finds out the guy, this this diplomat is a German who figures in his past. And Harry goes to Munich to, we don't know what he's going to do, but we assume he's going to shoot the guy. And that's how the story begins. So I wrote a I wrote five scripts, uh, figuring, you know, I might as well just tell the whole story and or much of the story. And so I have done that. And I, I just wrote a, uh, a pilot for uh, Sweet Dreams, which is the, the story about the uh, a U- U- female U.S. Marshal. So that's what I've been doing lately. And, and it's kind of fun just to, to write a script. I mean, my father hated it. He just said, I'll, I'll never write a script again because it's boring. It's, it's taking the same material that you've already written it in a novel and, you know, re-trenching it. So, you know, it's like, what, what do I sacrifice out of all these jewels that I have here? 
<laughs> right. So I, I I completely understand, but it's it's letting the story live on in another medium. And uh, well you said. have plenty That's of That's good. Yeah. What are you what are you working on? Uh the adaptation of what is real. Right. My my elevator pitch for it is uh, Oz meets the night of and um in this fog of war, you know, there's few that are will ever emerge to be a hero. And that's my story. I mean, as as you read, I I didn't have any axes to grind. I didn't try to demean any group or person. I didn't try to make anybody out to be buffoons. Their behavior as as crazy outlandish as it may be, their their war, this imaginary war with these imaginary enemies for drug trade dominance. I, I just properly wanted to deliver that world and hopefully as an adapting to television, hopefully it'll live on in that space and folks will be brought into California prison system through the eyes of the group that I was a part of the others. So it's a series. That is the hope. Yes. And that's, that's what we're working towards right now. Uh, I believe it's best served in the series because I have nine years worth of material at least, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping that, it, you know, a, a two, three hour movie wouldn't serve it justice. Nine seasons definitely would allow everyone to see That'd be great. the torture. Yeah. So uh, fingers are crossed and, you know, you got to go do the dance in this boardroom and hopefully they see the vision and see that there's uh, a way to sell it to the wider audience. Well, it's a fascinating story. I don't know how it could miss. From your mouth to these execs ears. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you, if I may, um, you were uh, arrested after, uh, breaking into, I think it was Joe France's house. And uh, how do you break into a house that has uh, cameras and a security system? Or is that a trade secret? Uh, not much of a trade secret. Uh, ingenuity. You know, there's, always <laughs> room, there's always that room for uh, the human element of failure. Uh, all of the technology, all of the security gates and security guards um, although they provide a vital service and they work you always look for the you always look for the, the the one kink in the armor and the kink in the armor might be the human the kink in the armor might be how the camera pans and you have two seconds to get 20 yards you know forward yeah. and in in my crime, um, you know, the backstory to why I committed it. I detail that a bit in the book. I didn't want the book to be about my crime or the, my time in Hollywood. I wanted it to be about my experience from day one of incarceration going forward. So in why I committed the crime, I give the audience that understanding I don't make any pleas for sympathy or, you know, you have to understand I had to do it or anything like that. But I do say that, you know, there weren't any doors jimmied open or windows broken. And I tried to commit the crime where the ultimate 
ultimate goal was to have Joe Francis afraid any time that he goes to open his door for the rest of his life. The reasoning behind that is what I was told that he did. So my motivation was, how do I have him in fear going forward? And what I was told that he had done to this young lady. So I think you no. uh, accomplished it. I, I think I did. Yes. I, I, I accomplished it and was so successful in it that the state of California said I should go away for nine years <laughs> to right. think about it. And right. Do it again. <laughs> well, let me ask you, can I, can we get together when I come to LA? I'd love to talk more about uh, just your life and uh, your book. And, you know, it's fascinating. For sure. I'll have a stack of your books for you to sign for me. My pleasure. <laughs> Excellent. It's been a great conversation, and let's keep in touch. Great. Thanks, Riley. Appreciate it.